Welcome to Australian Design Radio to provide Australia and the world with conversations and commentary on Australian design. I'm Matt Leach, and we've got another show where Flynn has been pulled away due to work commitments. So he's left the grunt work to me and Andy Wright. Welcome back, Mr. Wright. Good morning. Nice, bright and early. Here we are in, in Launceston. It is incredibly bright. We have our special guest, Vanessa Ward. Hello, Vanessa. How are you feeling this morning? Good morning. Um, all good. We've got you up very early because... Bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Yeah. <laughs> Me and Andy have to catch a flight, so we've forced you out of bed. Oh, no problem at all. Last time we spoke, Andy, Never Not Creative was being launched. Mm-hmm. Anything to report? Um, we're actually going to do an event. Going to do an event? Mm-hmm. Yes. So, 1st of May, we're going to do an event, uh, probably small and intimate, but down at uh, Streamtime HQ in uh, Jones Bay Wharf in Piermont. So uh, we'll be we'll be putting details out about that soon. So if you haven't kind of signed up or shown interest yet, it's uh, bit.ly slash nevernotcreative. And what is the event going to be? I think the event's going to give us a chance to talk to people about the issues that are important to them. We may do, depending on how many people we get, like some sort of workshoppy thing to kind of understand the issues and then the different dimensions that sort of sit and dynamics that sit behind them to make sure we're kind of covering everything from from lots of different perspectives so yeah it's a great chance to kind of get heard get some some kind of agendas out there and then start to think about solutions together that's great now you're also doing brisbane design conference yes we're going up to brisbane and i heard that there's a number of events you're doing up there as part of it yeah i think we're gonna have a few breakouts to discuss um kind of you know what's happening in our world with some of the stuff we'll talk about is is obviously for stream time yeah i'm i'm also hoping to try and do something on the morning of one of the days uh I'm roping in a few people for that so i think it's a watch this space i can't yep. promise anything just yet but hopefully something will happen now vanessa this is your show co-founder of nomadism and Operating out of Hobart, you were one of the speakers at the Foundry event. That's the whole reason we're here. Now, I'm not going to give you the regular bio at the front because I actually want to delve into that history in a much deeper way. But just so our listeners know, you're a respected design thinker, strategist, product designer, and focused on creating, I guess, holistic brand experiences. So in a classic doing things backwards way, can you tell us more about nomadism? Sure. Nomadism is an experienced design consultancy. It initially started with the idea that um, we can't just create brand experiences if they're not supported by the internal org structure. So we are a collective member, a collective of maybe three people. One person is whose skills are focused on culture change and myself on brand and experience. And we have a third uh, member who is really focused on the systems design piece. And that is many inputs across maybe a region or a city or a larger space or territory, which has a number of organisations and all they all have a common goal to, to create an experience for. So those other two people is um, obviously Dr. Stella Humphreys. Correct. And Sandy O. Correct, yep. And are they both based in Hobart? Uh, no, so um, Sandy O is based in Hobart, she's my partner, and um, Stella Humphreys is based in North America. 
And we have a very um, a loose arrangement where we're each looking for work and can bring work in that will play supporting roles to each other. So it's a it's a great arrangement that's flexible enough to allow change and diversity, but other side projects as well, and then allows us to have the expertise when required to be able to support the projects. So that's where the collective kind of term comes in I guess doesn't yeah it? and it's great I mean we'll we'll hit projects where we need more digital marketing and that isn't necessarily our skills but we have a wide enough network to be able to um, knock on friends doors and ask them and contract them in to do sections of work or media buy etc yeah. I noticed on your website you, you offer three areas of expertise organizational health brand experience and systems design and I guess looking at those steps they, they seem like they kind of run one after the other they do but but people come and clients come with very different requirements and needs some people for example the org health piece people want to know how's my company doing where are we going in five years time are we future proof to get there do we have the right capabilities and skills to be able to get where we want to go does everyone actually want to go in the same direction and and surprisingly that's not always you know congruent so we undertake and I mean it's loosely a design thinking process but it's um, stakeholder interviews we do workshops um, we do facilitation and if there are key people who don't necessarily have their vision aligned but they are key players we can help them realign their sort of thinking or understand how they can be in a place that better supports the company or the organization or or find other outlets for what they need to do i just had that picture of was it george clooney and up in the air where he <laughs> he lets people go nicely this is a great opportunity <laughs> that you could... <laughs> yes this is the next stage in your career yeah. yes. um it's like when you start something new it's often based on kind of like the gaps you've seen from your past experiences. Is, is that kind of what you're trying to do? do yeah, here? absolutely. So often we would, in, in former roles and, and jobs and tasks, and we'd be asked to say, well, tell, give me a product strategy or create a brand experience or a new brand and give me a future scenario. But when you went to speak to all the relative uh, stakeholders, you found that they weren't really of the mi- right mindset to mm. be able to execute. And you thought, well, if I give you this shiny new toy, you're not going to be able to, to produce the next shiny new toy by yourself because the d- the reporting lines are wrong. No one can make decisions. People are confused about where they're going. And so there's always a kind of, I would say, an internal brand activation piece. But there's also um, making sure that everyone is very clear about where they're going and why and that they all really want to get there as well. Mm. It's like a child. You, you shouldn't have that nice shiny new toy unless you're going to play with it well and nicely and look after it. <laughs> and, you, and you've looked after your previous toys. And, exactly. Yeah. And you can you show got a that. track record. Exactly. <laughs> and just going back to the George Clooney thing, we, we have a thing in our house that new toy in, old toy out. Uh, yes. Zero sum policy. <laughs> That's not a bad idea from, for a lot of brands. <laughs> <laughs> On that thing, like when, when you talk to a brand and you're suggesting that you look at the health of the first do, do you get pushback on that it has to come from them you you can suggest it but but change has to come from within like fundamentally people want to have to change or accept that they're willing to say look there might be something here we're not doing right what can we do to rectify it I think the toughest thing is when you find a problem but but no one wants to do anything about it because it's kind of like they've been busy sweeping those skeletons under the rug for yeah. for a while and they're kind of like a we can't deal with that just now. So it's a it's a timing and willingness thing, but 
it's not, I mean, change doesn't have to be, you know, the ripping the Band-Aid off fast, it doesn't have to hurt, you know, it's a, it's a gradual process of, of discussion, finding change agents, people who are willing to make change in the right direction and helping that process along. It's tougher when there's a, a systemic cultural problem because that's really, that's a big shift, but that doesn't happen with smaller organisations so much because they're leaner, they're, they're a lot more focused on the goals, but larger organisations, that can happen in pockets. Is this a a reaction as well? Like, is there something that you've worked on in the past that was like so good, it had so much potential, and then you you kind of watched it die in the hands of well, you know, I think I think this that could sum up the fears of an agency. You know, you you're you're busy creating the beautiful shiny new toys, and you don't know if they're going to live on a shelf. You don't know if they're going to be rolled out, you know, flawlessly, or it might die a death by a thousand cuts in the process. You just don't know. And I think the more that if you bother, if you're going to be bothered doing the work in the first place and you're going to put your heart and soul into it, you want to make sure that they have the skills and the tools necessary to make that thing fly, mm. you know, not not welter on the ground. So it, it is in most agencies' best interests to help the organisation and company give that thing a, a great start in life yeah. you know it's that that ch- that child off you go into the world <laughs> so i've seen it happen mm. and um you you want to fix a problem holistically which is where nomad the the um, inspiration for nomadism came from and you want to fix a problem so that it's actually making change it's not just a temporary band-aid i want to delve into you a little bit more and because i think you had quite an uncommon sort of entry into design. Uh, you started it with a Bachelor of Gold and Silversmithing and you actually had a pretty uncommon entry into education altogether because did I read somewhere that you unenrolled yourself at around 13 and put yourself into a Montessori school? I did. I hated school. Really? <laughs> I did and, and I think that was the best thing I ever did. Like so it. yourself, you, you made that decision. I, I came home one day and I just said to mum and dad, <laughs> I said, that's it, I'm done. This is, this is stupid, I'm not doing this anymore. And they looked at me and they went, no, this is not how it works. <laughs> <laughs> My little girl says need... that, she comes home, I'm not doing school anymore, yeah. I don't want to do it. It's like, well, you know, you're going tomorrow and also you've got another 12 years of this yeah. to come. <laughs> well, maybe you should but maybe try not. This. Maybe not, because it was, so I think fundamentally I was, bored I was bored to tears with the pace and and everything else and so I think my dad just said look you go off and find yourself a school that you like enroll yourself <laughs> you do all the work yeah. and you get yourself there in a matter this is where on you yeah this is on you, you <laughs> at 13 yeah yeah so um so I did I, went... I have a feeling this wasn't the first time he'd be challenged <laughs> on something <laughs> yes this is the last straw okay <laughs> it's your responsibility now <laughs> So I did, and, and I remember reading somewhere about about the concept of schools where the responsibility was on you, like you, you worked at your own pace, you didn't have anyone telling you what you should get up to at a certain time, you just, you went and, and found ways to learn. I found this Montessori school and it was hours away from where I lived, like two hours on public transport every morning and every evening. So it was a ridiculous thing, but it was great because... I suddenly realized, look, I'm in control of my education. It's hmm. not, you know, these these power structures above me telling me what I should and shouldn't do. It was really saying, okay, look, 
these are the standards that you're expected to get to at the end of every year or two years you go and find a way to get there yourself there are there are tutors or mentors or support here if you need it there's a library if you need to go to the state library off you go find out find ways in this city in this with the tools of you know the city that we have to learn and so that's effectively what it was and suddenly it was just an incredibly empowering process so next time your yeah, child nice. comes to you yeah. well I, but it also sounds like the fact that you'd already made that decision meant that you're a perfect fit for Montessori right I kind of yeah. in the way that they that the way that they teach or, or kind of don't teach yeah but I mean look they had several they had several I would say life-changing bits of structure in there so it yeah. wasn't a free-for-all I mean yes. you know some people went and sat on a couch and read novels all day like that's just what yeah. they wanted to do but then at some point they had to step it up and do an exam and they found themselves woefully unprepared and then the Montessori way is just to say well mm that's the consequence of your actions off you go and try it again you know and that's fine for some people I just I knew exactly what I wanted to do which was go go into art and design school and um and so I just focused on where my score had to be and what I needed to do to get there and, and off I went but having said that there were a couple of bits of structure in there as I mentioned one of them was they did a theory of knowledge which was philosophy and so suddenly you were taught about how you think, why you think, mm -hmm. how other people think, which made a big difference. And the other piece was psychology. And so you went and ran little psych experiments on the younger kids and you watched them at their developmental stage. And that was fascinating how they viewed the world through drawings or, you know, being able to analyse that. And that's really empowering, I think, for a teenager to be able to go, oh, this is how we think. This mm -hmm. is how we, you know, you get outside your own head and you start to look at how people work as humans and that's fascinating this all makes complete sense now because i've spent the last day and a bit with you and uh i feel like someone just showed me the picture of the puzzle ah <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, okay i see you know how all this you've been here 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 done this 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 and this and it's like ah oh, these formative okay. years that's it, that's it. yeah <laughs> so then what led you to jewelry i guess or, I mean, was it, was it jewelry at that time? Yeah, no, it was. Look, I, I've had a love affair with architecture. Mm -hmm. I love form. I love space. I love materials. I always have had and um, started off with Lego, you know, nice shiny yeah. bricks. But I, I did a couple of units in, in architecture and I just found the process so slow. Like went into, you know, jewelry and, and product design. And at the end of the day, you could have a finished product in your hand. And that was so rewarding. And it's like the the tangibility the speed the execution you were just like this is great you know so for someone who's really quite impatient that was just a really fabulous thing and then ironically I went on to do a PhD looking at the relationship between jewelry and architecture bridging those scales so is that architectonic jewelry yeah and so the study for two to three years was architectonic jewelry right and thank so you for saying it properly <laughs> Um, it's a bit of a mouthful, but um, but but essentially, it's how jewelry responds to architecture, and I categorised it in ways where jewelry can use the principles of architecture. So um, through through scale, through material, through proportions, it, jewelry can respond to space, and and various other things as well. So it was a fairly esoteric and indulgent thing to do. Can but you, yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you, can you explain that a little bit more? How it responds to space. Well, I, I mean, people respond to space and, mm -hmm. and the output is, is jewellery. But um, there were, when I started to look at the field of contemporary jewellers, 
people and and when I say jewelers, it's probably contemporary jewelry is more like objects being sighted on the body. Right. <laughs> so it's it's less about the intrinsic value of a material in terms of wealth, um, and it's less about um, an aesthetic quality which uh, is displayed for vanity. So these are the I think when we look at the wider definition of jewelry, this is this is what jewelry has always been a way to carry wealth around safely. And so this is looking at jewellery as ideas and jewellery and, and um, jewellery as cited on the body, ideas and materials that, that help do that. And so I found this this um, effectively quite modernist jewellery where people were, artists were looking at, at architecture and responding to it. And, and, you know, from making miniature versions of the Parthenon and mm-hmm. sticking it on a brooch to, to very, you know, very literal um, responses to architecture to... There's a, a German uh, woman who went into an old power station and spent weeks in their disused power station and, and loved the quality of the brickwork and the, the rusted pipes and, and made this kind of quite lovely sort of evocation of, of this space. And so there are other people who do mm-hmm. this type of work as well. But it's very, I mean, so that's a very artistic interpretation. And then right on the other side, you have people who literally take uh, the golden triangle, the golden mean, and look at the proportions in there and how they're used in, in classic architecture and transport that to miniature objects right. and, and then cite them on the body. And then they look at the, the relationship of scale to the body. But it, So it was, a, it was, I think, a fairly indulgent two and a half, three years. I studied... Amazing chance to kind of experiment and explore, though. Oh, it was incredible. Um, my particular area that I focused on for my own work, because it was a... A practice-based PhD, which means you're writing the 50,000-word thesis on the subject area, but you're also producing a body of work through practice, i.e. what is your response? And, mm. and I was looking at Swiss neo-modernist architecture, which um, is, a, is quite an interesting space. So it meant that I got to spend a lot of time in Switzerland, which is not a bad thing, and, uh, and spend time in a lot of architecture there, which is amazing. And... Um, and it was a very pleasurable thing to do. It wasn't. It wasn't an angst-filled PhD. So. <laughs> sounds sounds perfect. Mm. You can see me there next, but I just need to learn how to say architectonic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can invent your own term. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. So you, this obviously led to eventually you had your own. It was an international jewelry brand, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. So it was. At the time, I was. Um, I made the first, I would say, two or three hundred pieces and they were all selling very well by hand and thought, look, I can't keep this up, neither can my hands. It was gruelling. I felt like my hands were bleeding by the end of it. And so I went off and and got it manufactured and I realised there was enough demand for that. And this was a a really great time in life because I had a lot of, I was teaching part-time. And so in between my three to five days, I would um, go off and do exhibit at design shows. And so I met this wonderful community of designers who, makers, artists, etc., who would go to these design design week shows all around the world and exhibit their work and sell and find retailers. And so it was amazing. There would, there would be this kind of community of people who would go to Copenhagen, New York, Tokyo and, and Australia and, and all the rest of it. And... Um, Apart from a wonderful group of friends, they were also people who were sort of at the same stage where they were developing limited-run production pieces for sale. They hadn't necessarily worked out their whole sort of marketing and strategy for, for what retail should look like, but they were slowly accruing um, shops mm. and to sell their stuff. And so it had a very kind of organic feel to it that everyone was 
learning together. Um, and helping each other. And, yeah, and mm. I still keep in touch with um, this group of, of friends who are literally from all over the world, from Santiago through to Thailand, through to Japan, and, and they're a great group of people. Um, and they've all, you know, some people are still doing it, some people have moved on to other aspects of the business, etc. But I think what was interesting is that they were just so diverse and they were kind of all at this stage of how can I develop products, make my sort of space, carve out my space through design and, you know, bridge that gap between not being completely rampantly commercial but still mm. having some sort of soul to the business as well. And is that what led you, because obviously you've, you've gone from there and then you went and actually did design. Um, it was a diploma in design in the Netherlands? I didn't actually graduate from that. Right. Um, <laughs> so. Another one that comes out. I, I Another think I last one. Yes. Yeah. Andrew yes. never finished his. Yes, we're all frauds. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, yeah. <laughs> I think it's a. It, it was such a. It was such a challenging course. So my first degree was very linear in a sense. It's like you learn to make five things perfectly, and then we'll allow you to think about design. And so very craft focused and this was in a way the absolute opposite so I had to flip 180 degrees and it was show me the rationale for the concept first it's got to be provocative it's got to be interesting and then if the thinking's good enough maybe you can go find someone to make Mm it but it was it was an amazing two and a half years I was there and they I started in the master's program and it kind of dissolved like halfway through they realized that they didn't have their shit together (laughs) and they said look we're going to put the course on hold for two years and I'm like well I've just kind of come all the way from Australia to live in Holland for a master's program that you've now decided you're going to dissolve you should have told me before Mm. so I said look I'll just go into the diploma course because that's where really interesting things are happening Mm -hmm. Um, you had designers like Jürgen Bai and Heli Ungaris and Dick van Hoff and they were busy creating their kind of dream school in in various courses in the underground and and so it was wonderful and um it wasn't something i it was grueling as well (laughs) there were like all-nighters constantly and um and i got the end to the end of two years and i was like i can't keep this up i think i'll go i'll go go work it's easier (laughs) (laughs) but it was one of those one of those times where you think oh this is the period where i'm having my head rearranged like forcibly rearranged Mm -hmm. in terms of what you think design's for it's not about ergonomics it's not about any of these things design should be uncomfortable it should be a provocation and that's a really challenging place to put your head if you've been all about material finish and ergonomics and how things work in the space and the beauty of an object and this was really like we couldn't care less what the object Mm. looks like what does it say so that was that was really challenging but I'm incredibly grateful to have had my head rearranged. <laughs> How much of all this now is uh, realization versus kind of like how you felt at the, at time. the time? Like, you know, huge. What you said, you said yeah, yeah. Yeah, huge. Because at the time, you don't have the objectivity or the wherewithal or the distance to be mm. able to see what you're going through. You know, it's tough and you understand that it's kind of polemic from where you were, but you don't understand how you're going to get through it because you're busy with deadlines mm. and you're busy with trying to make stuff that will pass the test (laughs) yeah it's interesting because we've been talking a lot about education over the last day and a bit and you know how how students might think that they're sort of ticking things off that they can now do and yet yet it's not until you actually get to put them into practice that you understood what you just Mm. learned or did or and how you're putting that experience to use 
Yeah, and I think it's I think it's very different in some models. I feel like the Australian education system has become very what what is the word? Quite not administrative, but there are when it I is first administrative. <laughs> when I first heard about the rubrics, I was like, what, what is the rubrics? You know, and I was informed by a friend who who teaches at, at UTAS. And I've, I've since come to learn firsthand um, what it is and, and how to fill one out and all the rest of it. But when I think to the European education system, that really wasn't there. There's a, a kind of description and there was more of an experimentation of where mm. you would get to with a certain type of thinking, you know, versus a, a more of a, all right, I've got to get to these levels. There really wasn't that expectation at all. There was like, here are the foundations, off you go, see where you get to. Mm. If you're good, you'll fly, you'll fly. If not, you maybe just get hover off the ground a little bit, mm. right? So I think it's very, very different. And that responsibility was all on you, not the, on the institution. Yeah. And I think that's the difference. And this is the result of grades and numbers and KPIs rather than people, yeah. <clears throat> which is actually what we're, what we're trying to develop, right? And it's also, I mean, you, you bring up rubrics and it's a good point because, you know, Should students... Should we give people a quick... Because well, I don't. Oh, well, Apart from a so cube, that is very difficult. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us what it's rubrics like is. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is. It is kind of like that because it? it's constraints. So it says, it tells... Uh, the student and the and the marker, uh, what they're actually looking for. So, right. what what the, what is the performance criteria they're looking to mark against? Unfortunately, what happens is uh, essentially the students look at that probably first, mm-hmm. and they kind of work out, okay, this is what I need to do right. in they order learn to get the, the grades. Test. Yeah. The teacher teaches to the test. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I think that was the opposite because I can remember so many times. It was a pass or fail situation. You know, there was no grades in between. You didn't get 70% of anything. You were either pass or fail. And I can remember the post-mortems between students that would go on for hours in a bar. You know, you'd sit there and you're like, and when he said this, do you think it meant this? Or was he referring to, you know, and so and so there <laughs> was that's this. that's a learning experience. You know, absolutely. Yeah, and I think and so that's good. when we just, we would spend hours of our time in and out of class after tutorials going through oh and they responded to this person in this way and do you think it's because of this or the idea Mm. was too easy that wasn't you know you would really go through and try and understand people's motivations for their subjectivity i think i think students have too much on these days or at least they think they do in the sense of you know they've they've got a part-time job potentially or they've got a computer game they need to finish or they've got you know a, a club they need to get to it's that kind of because I, I was the same. I didn't have much on when I studied. And so mm-hmm. it was all about the study and all about kind of delving deeper into the knowledge. Yeah. It's also focus and priority as mm-hmm. well, right? Like we're, when we're, I think we were talking yesterday about how you know, sometimes it's the like the artifact that gets created that gets too much time spent on it. Like if you're recording a video about the project that you did, more time goes into what the video looks like than what the content of the video yeah. was. Because yeah. um, yeah. we're kind of selfie obsessed maybe or uh, we think we're here to kind of learn the tools mm-hmm. mm. so back to you two years later you're in Glasgow yeah and you're doing your PhD in design this time yeah. it was a it was kind of accidental um, I didn't I wasn't really I was working for an architect in London and it was an Australian architect it was it was, it was good. It was, it, you know, I think it's one of those first jobs where you're the very junior designer. So you're doing a lot of, a lot of the menial work, um, which is fine, but it's a great, a great way to learn what's happening in a studio. And I thought, look, this isn't, this isn't exactly what I want to do. So I'll, I'll keep looking. 
And I, uh, we went, uh, my parents came over to the UK to visit. I'd been there for a few years and um, we did a little road trip. My father had known someone up at the Glasgow School of Art he wanted to speak to and it became a, a process of Chinese whispers. We went up and spoke to someone <laughs> in the ceramics department and they said, oh, here you've got a background in gold and silver. Would you like to go and speak to our jewellery and product department and silversmithing department up there? And I said, oh, I'll go and check out the studio. It's of course of interest. And by the time I'd walked up to this very distributed set of buildings, by the time I'd walked up there, the story had become, oh, Vanessa's interested in doing a postgraduate <laughs> course. Why don't you speak to her? And so, and I, and I was kind of quite taken back when, when they were passing on this story to each other whilst showing me around. They said, oh, by the way, you know, we've got a scholarship available. Are you interested? And that's one of those things when someone puts that in front of you, you're like, oh, hang on. <laughs> Paid, paid opportunity and so it, it by the end of the you know hour or so looking around the department I was like oh, this isn't a bad idea so the Chinese whispers worked yeah. <laughs> they were very persuasive and brand, brand new marketing technique I'm yes. saying yeah. Yeah, yeah it's it's coercion <laughs> yeah. but in the right direction and uh and so a week later they said oh, why don't you just submit a proposal of your ideas and I started to think about what I all the things that I loved which mm-hmm. was architecture and making things and I was like oh, I'll just put those two things together and um, a week later, they said, oh, we'd, we'd love to offer it to you. Can you be up here in two weeks to start? And I was living in Wales at the time and and moved up to Glasgow uh, in early January and started. And so it was it was accidental, I would say, but a, an amazing experience. And Glasgow's a, a lovely, lovely place filled with wonderful people. You, I mean, you have moved around, I mean, to some of the other places I know about, uh, Toronto, Singapore, San Francisco... Um, and obviously Australia. I mean, I have to ask, are, are you a spy? <laughs> I have three passports. <laughs> no. That we no. know of. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, it's, it's um, luck and opportunity and, and um, being a bit curious. And when you see or sense an opportunity that you think will take you on an interesting little journey, you go. Yeah. The, so the um, journey that you've been on so far, highly educational at this point with some work thrown in as well. Yeah. And then you ended up in Canada. Well, yeah. So I, so I, I kind of, I always did freelance work on the side and I think that's, I, I worked, I paid my way through every single degree and it was a combination of waitressing and uh and graphic design and um, it's 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 worked out because you can do both things in pretty much any country and there's demand for it even if you don't speak the language and so I had an amazing job while I was in Glasgow working at the papers there and doing layout and design for their magazine and and the Sunday Herald and and it's just enabled me to kind of keep this kind of this this level of work that was flexible around studying and around um, living and, and traveling as well working in that kind of environment as well because I, I did some work in kind of publication while I was in college and it, it was just the because um, it was basically the same thing all the time but it, you just got better and better and quicker and more efficient there is nothing like working in publishing to make you understand the value of speed yeah <laughs> You know, you, you have a the paper's going to go out. It, there's there's nothing stopping the printing printing presses running, mm. um, and it was a Sunday paper, and so it was a perfect job in the sense that 
it would be probably a 30 hour week but it was literally done over two and a half days and so you would be working frantically because you'd start in you'd come in on Wednesday evening work a few hours um, you know you'd be oh, the people who are ready would would send you things to be illustrated graphs to be made layouts to be done on pages that were completed but things wouldn't start fully dropping in until Saturday night and so until Saturday night through to like 2 a.m. where they did the first press, so they did the first run. There was just this frantic pace and there was no choice. You couldn't hold a paper up because you couldn't make a design decision. You just had yeah. no choice. <laughs> Still thinking about this layout. Yeah, yeah. no, 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 that's not going to happen. And so if, you know, you, you've got 15 minutes, you know, you've got 15 mm. minutes and you've got to be on to the next thing. And so that's that was an amazing primer. That is an amazing, yeah. Because I said publication, but it was really financial reports, which you could hold up a little bit. Yeah. But, yeah, but, this, that, but this was a weekly event. Yeah. And so you would get to 2 a.m. on a Saturday. You'd hear that the first line of newspapers had gone out okay and everyone gave the thumbs up and there was this kind of collective <laughs> sigh in, in the whole office. You See know? you next week. Exactly. We're like, oh, it's time for a drink. There is that, the one that first <laughs> comes off the press and everyone quickly goes through it and you go oh yeah or page five get in there (laughs) (laughs) but I but I loved it it was such an amazing um sense of effort that was being poured into this very live you know well I mean still press but but quite live because once it's in print you can't make a mistake and that 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 error is going to live there till the next week everyone's going to see it the editor, the, de- the deputy, editor, everyone's going to see it and and make comments, and no one, no one wants to be that person who made that mistake. So everyone's triple checking everyone, and that's that kind of collective um, work environment's just an amazing thing to be part of. So I want to talk about BMD, so Bruce Bauer Design. Mm. Uh, so you were obviously there in two thousand and six. For anyone who doesn't know BMD, that they, they do some amazing branding work. Particularly my favourite's a Unilever rebrand that they did mm-hmm. fairly recently in the Sonos um, brand. But back in 2006, so Bruce was still running yes. the show at that time. He was. Um, so he was he was still in the Toronto office and, and I think maybe two-thirds of my time through there, he moved and he set up the Chicago office. So he, he established this exhibition called Massive Change mm. and it was quite seminal in its time. It was this big exhibition of design and things that had made a massive change. And he talked a lot about sustainability and objects and, and things throughout the world. And, and that was getting a huge amount of traction. Um, and so at that time, there was a lot of demand for him to move to Chicago and set up another office just because of the sheer amount of work that was coming in that, that it was just too much for the Toronto office to do. And so it was a it was a kind of there were golden years in a way to be there because there was so much interesting work passing through the doors. You know, I got to see incredible amounts of Canada, you know, as a consultant, got to work on projects with, you know, brands that were just beginning to understand what design consultancy is, could be, mm-hmm. um, the storytelling capacity of design. And and they were really just thrilled at how design was starting to pull business in in a way that made for tangible results because it was sort of on the fringe then. There were, you know, yes, there were intangible results that came out of design work, but it wasn't a deliberate strategic effort to pull business in and and be very tactical about how it was used and, and how those stories were told to empower the organization but also develop um, future work as well so it was a, a really really great grounding um it was messy too i'll give you that like really? well i mean it's i think at moments of change where you you have an inkling of 
the power of what you're doing and where it could go but you don't have a defined methodology of like this is how we do it whereas now I think we have a fairly clear clear idea we have a strat phase we move straight into a ideation phase and then you sell ideas through and then you refine on one that it wasn't quite there yet it was still a little bit messy it was like we'll tell you a story of what we've seen and then we think we're getting to here and it it, it had that looseness still it wasn't buttoned down in the same way that it is now Mm. Do you think that, um, you know, because again, you, it reminds me of what you were talking about uh, studying the kind of that it was, there wasn't the structure so much around it. Do you think it was better for that or do you think the structures really helped? Um, oh, that's a tough one. Look, it's less efficient, but there's a, I think there's a naivety to it, which is quite nice as well. Uh, you know, I think now we, we are I won't say wedded to the process, but we go through it with a with a kind of ruthless efficiency because we know exactly what's coming next. Yeah. So, and those, it works. I mean, yeah, and it works, yeah. and there's there's no issue with that. But there are there were I think moments of discovery of oh we could turn this into an exhibition for people to come and understand and draw their own conclusions and write little post it notes or little letters as to what they saw happened. You know, so there was there was that sense of possibility because we didn't really know what came next, mm-hmm. and I think. That was quite nice. But having said that, we're, we're at a place where we can be really strategic now because we have a set of tools which are clearly defined. We've run mm-hmm. through it a lot of times. There's plenty of amazing examples out there. So, you know, I think there's benefits to be both. I'm just, I'm grateful to kind of have been at that stage doing that type of work in, a, in, a, in its sort of formative. But it's, and it's that structure now that means you can kind of riff off of it, right? Yeah. Like rather than, so it's like, like driving a car, like... Once you've learned the basics and it becomes second nature, then you start driving one-handed and doing donuts. Name. <laughs> <laughs> so when when um, so Bruce moved to Chicago, like two, I think you said two thirds of the way. Yeah, so I'd say. Did you notice a change in the um, office and the way things were done? Or absolutely. Look, it was a, it was a tough time for the studio. They had gone from and and a lot of big studios with famous designers on the the name on the door this Mm. happens to where they where they go through this shift where the name on the door makes a lot of the final decisions and it's it's design done in their image in a way and when you make a shift to a kind of we're just another office it becomes a commercial sort of not franchised Mm -hmm. but it becomes a real sort of okay we are a business and, and these this is how we do things and so there was a real effort to start to put process in at the time, I think WPP bought out a percentage of the business as well. Right. So we started to have um, partners like Crispin Porter. Um, mm-hmm. We started to have other partners that would that would come in and share their best practices. How, how big was it as well? Because I mean, it's, it's massive 40, now, isn't it? 40, 50 people. And I, I think that Toronto... Because they're over 200 or something now, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. yeah. But I think the Toronto office has retained its kind of size and scale from a friend I know still back there. But I think the other offices have, have grown. So it had that... There was a sense of loss of the original culture because the, the the name walked out the door and mm-hmm, spent less mm-hmm. time there. And his and Bruce is an amazing guy. He just he's this big jolly guy, and he just has this kind of joyful presence to him. So it it really kind of made a difference. And you know he never took anything really too seriously. He always found a way to smile about it, which was a, a really great presence to have. Um, and so when you shift over into a all right. We're back to ROIs and, you know, mm. there, is a, there is a culture change which is going to happen. Do you have, uh, do you take something with you now that you kind of learnt from Bruce? 
I mean, he never got stressed that I ever saw. He yeah. always found a way to smile and, and kind of, you know, it is what it is. There, there, were, there were always more creative solutions, I think, with Bruce. And yeah. that, was, that was the amazing thing. You know, I've worked in countless other offices where that's not the case. But he never let the bigness of it affect him mm. you know he he kind of re- retained his his composure and his personality which is you know big and wide and wonderful and 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 that's that's a phenomenal thing yeah, yeah. it strikes me as i mean that that looks like the sort of start of your design thinking journey in, in the kind of process and i guess that you go then to procter and gamble and and take over one of their perfume lines is it perfume uh, or it's, beauty lines? It's uh, S- Prestige Skincare. So, SK2? Uh, yeah, SK2. So it's a, originally a, a Japanese um, skincare line based on the the efficacious qualities of a yeast in sake. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. So so that was a real, that was a very big corporate shift to go kind of client side. But um, it, it feels like that's where you really started delving into user experience and kind of fleshing out that design thinking. Yeah. And I think it... There's such an emphasis. Um, I think Unilever and and P and G both have a real emphasis on, and they were very in early with um, David Kelly and IDEO in terms of design thinking. They they were quite. They had those ideas sold to them, especially in their North American offices, quite early on. So they had they were kind of primed in a way um, to use some of these strategies inside their business for for developing innovation specifically. But they have such a focus on listening to the user and knowing their consumer. And that's um, that was really where, for me, I'd always done consumer research, but not to that scale and not, not managed personally what are the things we need to get out of it and how do we best do that. And, um, and they worked with very big agencies like Ipsos and, and consumer marketing firms that really run analytics and they, they can do the skull cap with the ECGs and the eye wow. movement tracking. And so yeah. like the level of technology, apart from just a, a good ethnographic interview in home, just steps up. Mm. So suddenly you've got these capabilities and tools available through you, through other people to be able to understand from a behavioral standpoint what's going on with consumers and why they make very, very unconscious decisions about product. And so that was that was a sort of scaled up version of everything that we were doing previously. And it, it's fascinating. Yeah. Do you then get to appreciate the role of design within a, like a corporation and a business as well yeah and that's a it's a funny thing because on one level you could argue it's not really design you know um but on on another level the amount of thinking overthinking sometimes that goes into minute changes is phenomenal and it does give you an appreciation for some of the products consumer products like fast-moving consumer goods that have been on the market for decades and and you start to analyze these and why have they worked so well and why do they stand out at shelf and why do people have this passionate you know relationship to these consumer products which are effectively disposable or consumable and so so that's a very very different level of design to the kind of artistic perspective of beauty and materials it's it's a shift in the other direction i think you know people in the in the sort of artistic community would see you going in that direction it's like you're not the devil but you've you're selling out <laughs> you're selling out <laughs> but it is it's fascinating i mean it's 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 an insight into the human mind as much as anything and and then you you start to realize you know we've all been taught about semiotics in school and the sign and the signifier but then you start to realize how this plays out every single day mm. there's another move i want to talk about uh where you moved to san francisco 
and you started working with Fuse Project. Well, I mean, that seems like that must have been completely, you know, experimental, exciting. I'm very excited about this part of the interview. (laughs) (laughs) Look, it's such a it's such a hot place. I mean, it's it's a hot place in terms of the work that's coming out of there and the speed and the exuberance and the way and I've always had a I would say a kind of a love affair with technology. Mm. Um, I'm a big sci-fi buff. And so ever since the 80s, and I've grown up on Ray Bradbury. And and so this, this you know, the notion that this is where all of the great science fiction writers came from and and technologists and, and this relation, design's relationship to technology in that space was just so tight that it was it's always been sort of mm. on my radar. And then throw uh, uh, someone from Switzerland right in the middle of it all. Interview yeah, project. And yeah, and so and and Eve Eve is, is quite a, a strong force as well and yeah. all of that. But but really it was the opportunity to work with digitally integrated products. Mm. Like I felt like that was missing. I was so in my in my experiences, I you know, so much of the work that I've done has been with physical, tangible objects and product and brand and the opportunity to pull in some of the factors of a, a digital ecosystem into all of that was really interesting. Um, and, and I got that opportunity in spades, you know, I think I was thrown in, you know, in day one to a project with Universal Studios and we we're looking at creating a digital platform for them for their purchased movies. And so this was, this was just a, an incredible experience to suddenly be thinking about a whole different set of factors and how they play into experience and usability and um and that was terrifying but also mm. great to sort of push my thinking in into that ecosystem the other thing that's interesting about fuse project is the the model right like the the way that the, like there were different ways that fuse project would work with clients right and yeah. also even like eves took up roles Yes. With other companies at the yeah. same time. Right? So he's, I think he's still creative director at Herman Miller. Yeah. Um, and so there was a, a strong relationship to Herman Miller. There was always a percentage of the business that was equity based. Mm. So, um, and they weren't people like Jawbone came mm. in as, um, so uh, Jawbone up the up band and the jam box and it's time and, and various other things. They, they came in as equity partners. And so the, the relationship was different. Like with Jawbone, the team that were on that, they almost shared a studio so they would spend some time in our studio and then they would go over to the jawbone studios to work and so the relationships that were formed because of the the business arrangements changed Mm. you know we were in this amazing old warehouse actually not too dissimilar to this beautiful building that we're in in the foundry (laughs) (laughs) Um, but this great old used to be an old i think it was a furniture furniture factory that had been fitted out it was a a fantastic space filled with herman miller prototypes that we all sat on for um for desks hot desking and (laughs) um so prototypes in the sense that like they they were looking for your feedback or they were probably you know v1s or v2s mm-hmm. of of stuff that that him and miller sell so eve designed a um an office system which was all about collaboration mm. the v i think the v1s were were what the office was made out of and so and i think this was the amazing thing because it's a product design firm and and of course they have a very strong digital group there as well as brand but all of the products ended up in the studio as well so yeah, it was great. it was a it was like a a, a toy box yeah. <laughs> for, 
for design. I mean, you know, you always had prototypes coming through there. You, you know, they had a small workshop in there, which was for um, rapid prototyping in a machine shop as well. So there would always be things which were being tested and pulled out. And, and it, was a, it was a great little crucible for design um, of all forms. And we had technologists in there as well. So they'd be busy wiring up motherboards and, and putting together yeah. um, prototypes for our, our digital components. There were a lot of Internet of Things devices that, yeah. that we worked on, whether it was heating or cooling or, um, or lighting or, or locks, etc. So, I actually um, saw that the latest one was the UV that did with L'Oreal. It was yes. like a UV... Um, Sensor. Sensor, yeah. Which yeah, yeah. Tattoos, amazing. temporary tattoos. How much yeah. UV you're getting, right? Like, yeah, 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 exactly. And it, it lasts for three months and puts yeah. all the all the um, data so you can kind of see exactly. Yeah. And yeah, amazing. yeah. And I was, I was just, I, that was actually my last project that I was oh, on right. before I left. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So this is about probably, I think, a two year release. Usually it's a bit faster than that. But, yeah. um, but no, it's a, it's a very, it's a proposal to say, look, we've got all these sensors. Why can't we actually start wearing them? Mm-hmm. And um, and how can they help us understand our environment better and our skin, et cetera, et cetera. The new one just goes on on your nail. Oh, I haven't seen that. Yeah, that's a new. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty. It's it's pretty amazing. It's and it's almost like they're talking about that it, that it could be almost a fashion accessory, yes. but but it's also a health, and and that takes the kind of wearables into mm-hmm. another area. It does, and I think there's the. We've, we're shifting from that wearables as I have a device of technology around my wrist and it's very noticeable to it's either going to become invisible or yes. or a fashion accessory, mm. you know. And I think we're seeing garments shift into that space. We're seeing wearables become ingestibles, become, you know, it, it, they're, they're shifting to that invisible phase where it's just this kind of passive feed of information that comes out ingestibles. of Ingestibles. I have not looked into ingestibles enough. This is... This is all Black Mirror stuff. <laughs> so, I think I think you'd get into ingestibles yeah, I would. from from the little I know. <laughs> you have to give something up though. Really? Okay. Yes. Yeah. That's that's a good yes, point. That's your one in one out. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe the ingestible is the one in one out. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Giving up your freedom. For... <laughs> you you really strike me as someone who likes to wholeheartedly throw themselves into their passions. So you find something you like and then, and I'll, I'll give you an example because it, it surprised me that you, I found that you, you liked horse riding and you took it so far that you actually went into competitive long riding. Endurance riding. Yeah. Yeah. If you're going to do something. <laughs> what, what, what is that drive to sort of take it to uh, that level? I think it's a, just an opportunity to see where the limits are. Like there's a sweet spot for everything, but unless you... I think find the limits either side, you're not going to know. And I think there's also a mastery piece. Like you have to do something enough. Well, I do anyway. I have to do something enough times to feel that I can master it before I feel comfortable enough with it. Mm-hmm. And so that means, I think, pushing some limits, you know, and, and I it's, think... Were you talking to Jim from Tank about this? <laughs> He's really into pushing his limits as no, well. No, no, but maybe yeah. that's, a, that's a conversation to be had. <laughs> Yeah, well, we were talking about exercising the other day, and yeah. uh, I was happy with going for a run along the river. It was very nice. And then you told me how you were swimming in the. Uh, oh, look, it's not. That's not it. That, that's not uh, endurance. It's, it's cold in the air, not let alone in the water. <laughs> it is an endurance because you you told me you have to just keep moving. You do, you do, because it gets really cold if you just stop moving. Stop moving is a bad thing. But yeah, I think there's a sense of, of of pushing limits a little bit, not in a dangerous way, but just understanding where your own personal limits are and they that really has nothing to do with anyone else you know it's um it's it's just understanding yourself better i think yeah 
you're moved to Hobart and you've built your own design and built kind of yeah designed and built co co design look it takes building a house takes a village is (laughs) what I've come (laughs) to understand there are so many people involved and so many inputs it's been it's taken a a couple of years a year in the building a year in the design phase we're really interested in new technologies in the building of course so it's passive solar house so there's no heating find out how that goes in winter um (laughs) Wow, <laughs> but it it just it gets all of its heat, so it's just really well insulated. Mm-hmm. But it's using a few technologies which are a little bit newer here, and so we had to find the right collaborators and partners who are willing to step away from what they knew to mm-hmm. do something that they'd never done before, and be open to working on a day to day basis with me. <laughs> <laughs> and and now you, I guess you get to design something now that you get to fully appreciate. Right, like oh, you. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. No, it's it, it. There are so many people involved who have an opinion, and even something where you're saying, "I know that I I don't want heating. I want to make this as energy efficient as possible. What do I need to do?" It's an art, not a science. Like mm. everyone will have a slightly different opinion of how that's going to actually resolve. But it's it's been a huge learning process, and I I'd love to do it again. again? Yeah. yeah, and there's just so much that you come to discover about materials and how things come together on on a scale. Um, of a house you know no bigger if, but... if you did it again would would you get a challenge from like would you go to a different climate and do it and see what the is there i'm not i, I don't know if it? that's the um i love living here so i'm not sure yeah. where i'd go but i i think the challenge would be refining the materials that i've worked with or some of the decisions that didn't play out because the thing with building that i've really discovered is that there are cascading implications to mm-hmm. decisions and that on, on a scale that you know yeah sure in, in a digital interface you can go back and fix that or redo the navigation or whatever but in a building you can't yeah. <laughs> there is a kind of permanence to each step and that's been a fascinating process to understand the implications of every decision and so we always say with design start at the end and work backwards mm-hmm. and and i think that really applies to building but because there are so many steps and materials and people involved in that decision making that becomes a harder process i would definitely do it again but i would start at the end and move yeah. move backwards through the steps that brings us to time so where can people find out about you vanessa ward and not the community activist who's currently running for governor in the state of nebraska <laughs> I have a doppelganger. Yeah. <laughs> I always Although that wouldn't with surprise it. me. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's not what I do in my spare time. Um, LinkedIn, nomadism.co. Happy to have conversations for the chat. Look us up. And Andy, where can people find out about you? Um, I love Twitter. So we can go at ADWrighty on Twitter or, of course, at Streamtime. You can find this episode and more at Australian Design, OzDesignRadio.com, and you can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and SoundCloud at OzDesignRadio. Thank you so much, Vanessa, for coming in. Thank you, Matt, and thank you, Andy. Thank you, Vanessa.